All right. <laughs> Let me see if I have it set up right this time within the event. Give me one moment. Yeah, looks like it is live. And here one other thing I want to do Several failed attempts this morning at uh, using the uh, camera I had set up and my microphone. Fancy microphone set up, fancy camera set up this morning and uh, didn't help, didn't work. So I'm going to run on the fly without those things today. So much so I'm going to actually put up this microphone. Close my door. Well, welcome back to Public Problems. This seems to be sort of in the spirit of things, as it were. Um, thank you for your patience. Um, really excited to bring a live show uh, to you today that's a little different from what we've done in the past. So I hope uh, uh, some of you at least uh, hung through the first eight or ten minutes of technical difficulties here and um, just swapping over to doing it from a phone today. Um, so welcome back. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. It's great to be back doing the show, uh, even though this morning has me a little uh, ruffled uh, with the last-minute technical difficulties. Um, I'm back under some new circumstances that will allow me to spend more time developing the show and more time dedicating to this platform more generally. If you've been following along on Facebook on the fan page, you'll have seen that I've uh, become much more active uh, on the fa fan page about daily updates. We had an event planned for today as well uh, within Facebook. So I'm um, going to be building out a few more things related to the platform. I uh, am moving away from my academic appointment this summer, and that will allow me an opportunity to interact more directly with you all as part of this platform, which I'm really excited about. Also, Thank you um, to those who have supported the fan page in the last couple of weeks, all of you uh, as well. We've had about 80 new uh, fan page likes, uh, along with a handful of new Patreon subscribers over the past week. So thank you for that. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with you. Okay, let me show you the cool board I had set up. 
Um, who are we is our topic for this week. And earlier in the season, I turned to, uh, if you go back and if you haven't, uh, check the videos out from earlier in the season. Uh, they go back to January. And I started turning to some inspiration from poetry and literature and film and uh, some academic literature as well uh, from a number of different thinkers to start trying to paint a broader picture of lessons uh, outside of some of the more narrow public policy problems that we've uh, been looking at, at public problems over the past few years, but trying to take a broader approach to things that might benefit you directly and give us uh, collectively new insights into what are our uh, public challenges, what are our problems, how do we think of ourselves fitting in with this general public, and what kind of challenges does that create. So we uh, got to hear some from Olaf Stapleton, C.S. Lewis, uh, Godzilla as an example of existential, uh, existential uh, threats, existential risks, uh, Thomas Ruthke, and uh, some of his poetry. So um, in that kind of tradition, this week we're going to turn to a, a different thinker that we'll spend some time with, and that's Aldous Huxley, who you may be familiar with from the book A Brave New World. A lot of us, um, I think we're maybe exposed to that in school, at least here in the U.S. And um, so we're going to trace some one of his lectures along with uh, some other readings, uh, another lecture from him and from Olaf Stapleton, to give us a little bit of a framework to an start answering this question that I want to pose to you all and that I want to spend some time thinking about and discussing together. And the question is, as I've highlighted throughout the week uh, and through the title of the episode this week, is who are we? And who are we is the question that Aldous Huxley posed to an audience back in, way back in 1955. Um, and over the next few weeks, I think we'll dive into this a little bit more. But I want to start this sort of search of this question of trying to think about who are we as an important question for how we think of ourselves and how we conceptualize our problems and collective problems. Um, as uh, a broader question to be posed to you that Huxley posed to us back in 1955. So to get us started, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs of Huxley's uh, lecture, Who Are We?, that can be found in the book Divine Within in the, collection of story, in the collection of lectures there. So this is Huxley in 1955, after laying out an argument that we'll work through together. Uh, over time. He says, I think I have said enough to make it clear that the principles at any rate are simple. That we think of our, that how we think of ourselves, uh, as we think of ourselves, is a very small part even of the physiological and subconscious life immediately available to us. That we don't control our bodies in any meaningful way. We don't even control our thoughts. After all, the popular language is very clear on this subject. 
we say, a thought came to me. This flashed upon me. We don't say, I invented this thought. We accept what comes to us, and we have to learn how to take what is given by something which is not ourselves, in any sense that we think of ourselves. And this, as I say, applies to every level of activity, from the physiological acts, from very basic motor functions, to psychological skill going up to the most complicated ones, like playing the violin and playing the piano and so on. All right, he goes on to say, and finally, it's the same exact principle which holds good in the religious life. So Huxley claims that this same idea of learning that we're not completely in control uh, and not even of our own bodies and our own thoughts is akin to what religious scholars hold as the good life. And uh, he says, it's exactly the same principle which holds good in the religious life, where the aim is somehow to get out of the light, get out of what the Quakers call the inner light. We have to get out of the inner light and let it shine. And most of our lives, of course, are spent eclipsing this light with all possible means at our disposal. And the methods of doing this, Huxley says, he believes they're fairly clear, the way in which you can kind of become more aware of this not-self, as he calls it, of this uh, inner light, of kind of minimizing thinking, uh, putting such emphasis on your subjective self. And he says that he thinks the way of doing this is fairly clear across philosophical readings and across religious readings. And he summarizes them this way, that you have to live with a minimum of negative emotions, with the minimum of malice, and the obvious moral commandments or commitments have to be fulfilled. So these are the three things that um, that Huxley believes we have to uh, commit to to be able to get a sense of this um, inner uh, inner inner light, this not self that we think of ourselves. And he says, uh, and then there is this intellectual preparation, which is part of what we're going to begin exploring as well as part of these conversations. And he says the intellectual preparation um, of the seeding that the nature of the universe is such that our pretensions to be absolute and separate are ridiculous, that we're not complete individuals in our own little bubbles. We're connected to everyone. And that these are not only ridiculous, but fatal. And that we have to remember this all the time, as often as we can. And he says, and I think we have to do this preparation uh, in one way or another, a preparing of the mind to accept this uprush or downrush, whichever you like to call it, of the greater not-self, the sort of broader force throughout, which can also be spelled as self with a, with a large S, or as has been thought of in, in the uh, Eastern religious context, the Atman Brahman. Okay, so those are, um, that's an opening little bit from Huxley. 
I'm going to relocate uh, inside as part of uh, part of the experiment of being outside today is failing again. It's a bit loud. I'm not sure how distracting that might be to you. So just as you're reflecting on that for a moment, I'm going to move indoors. Back to a spot that if you had followed in the past, will look very familiar to you. All right. Okay, so I pulled this discussion from Huxley. There's a lot more in the lecture that I want to talk about over time, but just to get this idea in front of you to think about that maybe how we consider our individual subjective selves as absolute and separate from everything else is has some, some challenges with it that, uh, that Huxley wants to bring to our attention. And it seems to me that Huxley has a couple of important things for us to grab here as we think about the collective we and what it means for our problems to be to be public ones and what might be problems. Huxley, as I've kind of been alluding to, notes to two things that he thinks are related for us to consider. Um, one is that we don't invent our own thoughts. They just come to us, which is something I'm going to talk a little bit more about here in a moment. And two, that accepting this idea is the same idea as religions that are trying to encourage the good life. They're trying to get people to accept the limitations of kind of the individual conceptualization of, of self. And in the religious literature, it's this idea that we should get out of the way of ourselves and experience the, the inner light. Um, so the other thing to take away is that Huxley gives us a prescription that he thinks is common across re religious traditions about how to do this. So again, those are minimize negative emotions, minimize malice, fulfill obvious moral commitments or uh, moral commandments, and to intellectually think about and prepare um, your, your mind to think about the ways in which you're not separate and distinct from the world around you, that you're in fully embedded in that environment, as it were. Um, my own sense is that this may help us have some understanding in what binds us together um, as a general public, again, to highlight what some of our common problems might be. And before moving on from this, I want to consider this, this piece that Huxley shares with us, this idea that you don't, you as you generally think of yourself or as we typically think of ourselves, do not author your own thoughts typically. And one way, uh, the, the one way to observe this is the practice of mindfulness, um, which is something that I have been practicing regularly for the past uh, five or six years. And um, it's basically this idea of just paying attention to your own thoughts. So you could do it now here as you're sitting, you can just kind of sit quietly and listen to what thoughts come to your mind. And if you sit long enough in that silence, you'll realize that you have thoughts that come, which is what I just had now, the thought to continue talking to you. The other strategy to sort of observe this, if it's not something you're aware of um, or have had a lot of practice with, is to sit in silence, um, close your eyes is, is a general strategy, and try to count your breaths and just focus on your breath. Come in with a deep breath of one, out breath of two, and try to focus on that for a count of, say, 10 or 20. 
And what you'll notice is that things invade on your attention. That you're trying to focus on one thing, either sitting in silence and the next thought comes to you, or if you're trying to direct your attention um, elsewhere, um, you'll notice that other thoughts intrude upon you, okay? And so I recommend spending some time between now and when we talk again next week, uh, maybe trying that if that's not something that you have been exposed to or that you're, um, that you're aware of. If you have had some basic experience with that, one strategy that I've learned recently um, that I have found some value in is the practicing with koans. And I discovered these through the through Sam Harris's Waking Up app. Um, and there you can get a basic introduction into some of, 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 of koan training, which is, I think, also helpful. And, and this is the idea, rather than focusing on uh, silence or focusing on your breath, it's focusing on a particular saying that other people have found useful. Um, and one in particular that I encountered recently is this idea of sitting with the thought of who am I and trying to give some real consideration to what do you think of as yourself? What are the pieces of that? And, and how would you actually think of what your complete individual self is? So these are some direct experience tools that if you don't have comfort with, um, that I don't think there's a lot of harm in trying, and I have found them to be very helpful and would be interested in anyone's thoughts on either whether they have uh, practiced any mindfulness or co-ed training, have found strengths or weaknesses to those approaches in general of trying to, um, uh, to approach the, the good life, as it were. Okay, so another way I think of not of... of kind of preparing to think about some of this stuff is not only to think about how your thoughts, um, you don't choose them, they just arise, is also to see the commonality of life around us um, and what that might mean for how we think about life and whether or not it's unique to our minds and our subjective experience. So Huxley, uh, we'll turn to again here, captures this in a really uh, poignant way that I'd like to share with you. It's a little bit longer than the first reading, um, but will only take a few minutes. So this is also can be found within the collection of Huxley's work, The Divine Within. And I believe it was published in 1957 and it's titled, The Inanimate is Alive. And here's the first few paragraphs of it. The experimenters is a curious and special talent. Armed with a tea canister and some wire and with silk, a little sealing wax, with two or three jam pots, Faraday marched forth against the mysterious powers of electricity. He returned in triumph with their captured secrets. It was just a question of suitably juxtaposing the wax, the glass jars, the wires, the mysterious powers just couldn't help but surrendering themselves. So simple, if you happen to be Faraday. And if you happen to be Sir J.C. Bose, it also would be simple, with a little clockwork, some needles and filaments, to devise machines that would make visible the growth of plants, the pulse of their vegetable hearts, the twitching of their nerves, the process of their digestion, it would be so simple 
though it even cost Bose long years of labor to perfect his instruments. At the Bose Institute in Calcutta, the great experimenter himself was our guide. Through all afternoon, we followed him from marvel to marvel, ardently and with an enthusiasm, with a copiousness of ideas that were almost too much for his powers of expression, and left him impatiently stammering with the effort to elucidate his methods, appraise results, unfold the implications of them. He expounded on them one by one. We watched the growth of a plant being traced out automatically by a needle on a sheet of smoked glass. We saw its sudden shuddering reaction to an electric shock. We watched a plant feeding. In the, proce in the process, it was exhaling minute quantities of oxygen. Each time the accumulation of oxygen exhaled reached a certain amount, a little bell, like the bell uh, in Huxley's time that warned you you were nearly at the end of your line of typewriting that automatically rang. So a little bell, ding, 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 automatically rings when the plant exhales a certain amount of oxygen. When the sun would shine on the plant, the bell rang often and regularly. Ding, 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 ding. Shaded, the plant stopped feeding. The bell rang only at long intervals or not at all. A drop of stimulant added to the water in which the plant was standing set the bell wildly, ding, 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 tinkling as though some record-breaking typist were at the machine. Near it, Near the plant, for the plant was feeding out of doors, stood a large tree. Sir J.C. Bowes told us that it had been brought to the garden from a distance. Transplanting is generally fatal to a full-grown tree. It dies of shock. So would most men if their arms and legs were amputated without an aesthetic. Bowes, however, administered chloroform. The operation was completely successful. Waking... The tree took root, and in its new place, it flourished. But an overdose of chloroform is as fatal to a plant as it is to a man. In one of the laboratories, we were shown the instrument which records the beating of a plant's heartbeat. By a system of levers, similar in principle to that with which the self-recording barometer has made us familiar, but enormously more delicate and sensitive, the minute pulsations which occur in the layer of tissue immediately beneath the outer rind of the stem are magnified literally millions of times and recorded automatically in a dotted graph on a moving sheet of smoked grass. A smoked glass. <laughs> oh, goodness. Smoked glass. Bose's instruments have made visible things that it has been hitherto impossible to see. Even with the aid of the most powerful microscope, the normal vegetable heartbeat, as we saw it recording itself point by point on the moving plate, is very slow. It takes the best part of a minute for the pulsating tissue to pass from the maximum contraction to the maximum expansion. But a grain of coffee, a grain of coffee, wow, a grain of caffeine, coffee has caffeine in it. But a grain of caffeine affects the plant's heart in exactly the same way as it affects the heart of an animal. The stimulant was added to the plant's water, and almost immediately the undulations of the graph of the graph lengthened out under our eyes 
and at the same time became closer together, the pulse of the plant's heart had become more violent and more rapid. But after the pick-me-up, we administered poison. A mortal dose of chloroform was dropped into the water. The graph became the record of a death agony. As the poison paralyzed the heart, the ups and downs of the flattened graph of the graph flattened out into a horizontal line, halfway between the extremes of the undulation. But so long as any life remained in the plant, this medial line did not run level, but was jagged with sharp, irregular ups and downs that represented in a visible symbol the spasms of a murdered creature desperately struggling for life. After a little while, there were no more ups and downs. The line of the dots were quite straight after all, and the plant was dead. So, that was Huxley. While plants clearly differ from humans uh, in really important respects, you know, I find these similarities quite stunning that a, that a plant has sort of a rhythm to how it processes uh, gas and turns it into oxygen and how it feeds in that way and that the rhythm of it changes when there's sun and when there's shadow and that the same type of stimulants and the same type of depressants affect plants in similar ways to humans. And this is something that has been reported more broadly uh, more recently as I looked into it. Uh, there are some articles in 2018 and, uh, and, and more recently kind of in the broader media talking about plants uh, having these characteristics. So I find it uh, interesting that this element of common life, uh, uh, a pulse that both plants and animals have, is another compelling reason to consider some type of, of common life force across uh, both yourself and your not-self um, out there in the broader universe. Uh, this reminds me of Dylan Thomas, uh, who I shared earlier in the season with you, and his quote in his poem, The Force That Through the Green Fuse Drives the Flower. There's something, uh, kind of a broader life force that seems to have some characteristics across both animals and plants, and that this drives the flower's growth and its responses and changes as it does ours. So not only might we think about plants as having some life force, as we have discussed here, we could also speculate a little bit about how other types of systems might have some life force and Olaf Stapleton does this for us in his Star Maker with some beautiful language about imagining how a star might have a life force and what that might mean and how we can describe that. So uh, a couple of quotes as we wind down here from Olaf Stapleton's Star Maker where he describes stars with some of this life force type language. He says, Stars are best regarded as living organisms, but which are physiologically and psychologically of a very peculiar kind. The outer and middle layers of a mature star apparently consist of tissues 
woven of currents of incandescent gases. These gaseous tissues live and maintain the stellar consciousness by intercepting part of the immense flood of energy that wells from the congested and furiously active interior of the star. Thus, the normal experience of a star appears to consist in perception of its cosmical environment, along with continuous voluntary changes within its own body and in its position in relation to other stars. This change of position consists, of course, in rotation and passage. A star's motor life is thus to be thought of almost as a life of dance or of figure skating, executed with perfect skill according to an ideal principle which emerges into consciousness from the depths of the stellar nature and becomes clearer as the star's mind matures. There is perhaps some reason for believing that the free behavior of the individual star is determined not only by the austere canons of the dance, but also by the social will to cooperate with others. Certainly, the relation between stars is perfectly social. It reminded me of the relation between the performers and an orchestra, but an orchestra composed of persons wholly intent on the common task. Possibly, but not certainly, each star, executing its particular theme, is moved not only by the pure aesthetic or religious motive, but also by a will to afford its partners every legitimate opportunity for self-expression. If so, the life of each star is experienced not only as the perfect execution of formal beauty, but also as the expression of love. Some quotes from Olaf Stapleton's Starmaker. All right, those are the major topics and readings and thoughts I have to share for you today. Um, as we continue this conversation, we're going to revisit or with a number of these authors and revisit with this idea of who are we individually and who are we collectively? And what does that mean for what are counts as the general public and common problems and what are problems? And given our conceptualization of these things, what types of things might we want to focus on? as making sure that we're able to improve some of our common challenges with one another. It's a lot of fun to start this show back up. I'll be doing this weekly as we move forward. I wanted to say here at the end as well, I'll be sharing some content um, throughout the week on the Facebook fan page. So uh, if you haven't uh, liked that page yet, like, uh, like the page and you can see the uh, content that I'll scatter throughout the week, kind of paying nod to what, to the topics for, next week's podcast. Um, also be maybe some random videos that go up to kind of have some fun with. So check that out. And I'm trying to make this something that I can do with the majority of my time, um, which requires resources. Um, we've had a number of new Patreon subscribers. So if you've enjoyed uh, the show today, um, I would encourage you to consider supporting me on Patreon. You can go to Patreon and search Justin Bullock. Shows you how uh, there I'm creating the Public Problems podcast and gives you three opportunities, $3, $5, or $7 a month to support the podcast. Also going to be blogging, but infrequently, on the Less Wrong Forums uh, community blog post as well, which you can access for free. Okay. Thank you for your time this morning. 
I hope these are some interesting concepts for you to consider and looking forward to continuing the conversation with you. See you next week.